You're listening to a Big Finish production. Dripping wet, leaving a trail of soggy footprints, the Doctor and Amy race into the TARDIS. The doors click shut behind them as if tutting. The Doctor, a gangly grandfather in a young man's body, brings out his bow tie. Amy is a young woman very far from where she was born. Yet inside the gleaming, whirring control room of a ship that zips through space and time, she has never been more at home. She turns to the doctor and says, You said we were going to a water park. Well, it was a water park last time I was there. Definitely not the kind of flumes I was expecting. I wasn't expecting you to slide down its tentacles, especially without asking. So now what? I'm thinking a nice cup of tea in front of the fire. You don't have a fire. Just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, a cup of tea and a read of the newspaper. Take your pick. I've got all the years, future, past, parallel, alternative. Sometimes they shift while you're reading. Very exciting. The doctor's eyebrows waggle like enthusiastic caterpillars. Amy frowns. Or we could do something that is actually exciting. Amelia Pond, you've just survived a giant cephalopod attack and you don't want to rest? Nope. Good. Just how it should be. A long, low tone, like a heart rate monitor without a heartbeat, comes from the console. Amy looks over. That doesn't sound good. The doctor's forehead buckles like a scrumpled map. Incoming message, trouble getting through. He zigzags a lever. One of the screens fizzes into life. A young woman appears, leather brown eyes wide, face close to the camera. Ticking fills the console room, echoing off the walls as if they're inside the workings of a clock. The doctor scoots around the console, adjusting settings. Why can we still hear the ticking? Amy asks. Ah, just ghosting on the signal. Probably. Hmm. We're going to help her, right? Of course. It's what we do. The Doctor and Amy step out into fog, so thick it's like wading through cobwebs. The ground is soft and marshy, pulling at their feet. I'm so glad I changed into something warm and dry, says Amy, shivering. You're being sarcastic, aren't you? asks the Doctor. No, what makes you think that? Amy replies, in a tone far drier than their surroundings. And again, lovely human humour there. Amy walks out a few steps further into the misty gloom. I can't see anything at all. I can't even tell if it's day or night. The doctor takes out his sonic screwdriver. It shines green through the suspended fog, showing up the silhouettes of buildings in the distance. Amy peers towards them. Where are we anyway? She asks. Reichland, planet not unlike Earth, five cycles north of Never, east of where we began, and it's missing something. Not fog, and has all the fog a planet could need. Pretty sure it's good for mist too. Listen. What do you hear? Amy puts her head on one side. People in the distance, building works, and birds that I hope are smaller than they sound. Anything else? Amy tips her head the other side and closes her eyes. Behind all the other sounds is something else. A ruffling, rifling sound. Sounds like someone flicking through a book, Amy says. And what about the ticking? Amy screws up her face in concentration. Nope, can't hear it. I can't either. The doctor raises his screwdriver right in front of his eyes, bathing his face in emerald light. But the sonic can. 
The doctor examines the device again. This way. After 20 minutes, the soft squelch of the marshlands is replaced by something firmer underfoot. Now that's interesting, the doctor says, jumping up and down. Ah, you've got to love a street that can take a tap dance. They set off on the metal road, vapour streaming around them like ghosts. Every now and again it clears and they see the metal skeleton of a city rising up against a purple sky. The buildings are jagged, unfinished. On either side of them are container units with numbers on the front. The door to one of the units opens. A woman wearing blue overalls steps out, holding a toolkit. Can I help you? She says, placing the kit on the ground and taking something out. She is tall, muscular. She hits a wrench against her palm. Hello, calls the doctor, striding over and shaking her warmly by the wrench. Delighted to meet you, aren't we, Amy? Oh, yes, delighted. The woman picks up a drill and gives it a testing blast. And you are? She asks the doctor, her tone as sharp as the drill bit. The blade rotates inches from his face. Absolutely famished, the doctor answers, rubbing his tummy. Do you have anything to eat? I don't think that's what she was asking, doctor, says Amy. Oh, you want to know who I am? Good question, and you're not the first to ask whilst wielding a power tool. He fumbles in his pockets, pulls out the psychic paper and shows it to her. I'm this. The woman peers at the paper, then steps back, her face shifting into deference. Really? She asks. Very much so. Whatever it says, I'm that. You should have said. The woman replaces the drill in the box and wipes her hands on her overalls. Elifala, how, how can I help you, sir? We've been told that members of the colony are dying, Amy says. Who told you that? Olivia, I suppose. You can't believe a word from her. She's a fantasist. If her head's not in a book, it's watching an old film. I like her already. You shouldn't. She's telling people that members of their families have died. Causes as much trouble as Captain Medina herself. Uh, Captain Medina? You're from the Far Council and you haven't heard of Medina? That win you. So nobody's died on the colony at all? Six months we've been here and there's been nothing other than mild illness. I've only sent the strong and the healthy ahead. Ahead? Amy asks. Erla's eyes couldn't narrow any more without closing. We're really new, adds Amy. Couldn't get any newer. Hmm, Erla says, considering for a moment. Then, we're setting up the city for new arrivals. There are only a few hundred of us. We unfolded the ship into the city and we're now onto phase two, the building stage. Tell your superiors we're on track. That's why you're here, isn't it? Absolutely. So, with only a few hundred people, you'd notice if people suddenly went missing. Of course we'd notice. Everything's fine. Only thing wrong is the weather. It's not normally like this. Supposed to be sunny this time of year. The fog dropped a month ago. Been here ever since. Erla looks at the fog as if she'd like to take a chainsaw to it. Now, anything else I can help you with? Where can we find Olivia? Amy asks. She could be anywhere. I'm amazed she was chosen. Olivia's got no place here. Everyone has a place. Sometimes it doesn't show as others are taking up two places instead of one. I, I wouldn't know about that, says Erla. I don't mean to be rude, but I need to get on. She turns her back on them and goes back into the container, slamming the door. I've noticed, muses the doctor, that when people say they don't mean to be rude, they mean to be mean. The sonic screwdriver leads them through metal streets that shine under blue-white streetlights, past a library in the city hall, until they get to a large square occupied by a market. People sell their wares, the mist covering the stalls like tarpaulin. Behind the market is a gleaming building. The sign above the doors blinks the word hospital in neon green. The doctor peers closely at the sonic. Nearly there. The waiting area is empty. The doctor doffs an imaginary hat to the woman behind reception and flashes the psychic paper. She nods at it, then looks back down at her book. Behind her, a clock whirs too quickly, flicking through its timekeeping. How long has that clock been out of time? The doctor peers at her name badge. Gloria. Gloria shrugs. I ain't noticed. 
What about the ticking sound? Amy says. Doesn't make a ticking sound, the receptionist says, blinking quickly as if on fast forward. You can't hear it. It's faint, but ever present and already a slight irritant, like tiny scratches on the skin. You can't hear something if it's not there, Gloria says, folding her arms. Studies show that ticking sounds make patients impatient. What patients? Amy asks, gesturing to the empty waiting room. They'll be here soon enough. The next influx will be here in two weeks. Bound to bring lurgies with them. Gloria returns to her book. Well, if you don't mind, we'll just inspect the facilities. Gloria doesn't even bother looking up. The doctor lopes off down a corridor. Amy hurries after him. They pass wards and emergency rooms, all empty, until they reach a room at the end of the hall. I think we've found the source. Despite strip lighting on the ceiling, they can only just make out a number of beds covered in white sheets. Mist hangs over them like funerary smoke. A groan comes from the back of the room. A man calls out in staccato blasts, his voice paper thin. They move through thickening mist towards the sound of his coughs. He's over there, Amy says, finding the man's bed. She can just about see him writhing under the sheet. The mist creeps over him, covering him like a shroud. I can't breathe. I'm going to lift you a little further up the bed. See if that helps. The doctor tries to prop the man against his pillows. Ugh. I can't move him. Something's weighing him down. But there's nothing there. Someone help! Amy calls out. The man grasps her hand. His fingers are long and thin, pressing between her tendons. Tell her I'm sorry. Who? The patient jackknifes forward, lets go of her hand and starts hitting his own flesh as if trying to put out a fire. We'll get help. No! Time. Just tell her. The patient says. Who? Asks the doctor. His only answer is a long, rattling exhale and then silence. The mist sweeps away, revealing the man's body. His face and torso are charred, his lungs flattened. The doctor closes the man's staring eyes. Amy reaches out to touch the man's arm. His body crumbles like burned paper into dark ash. There's nothing you could have done. The voice came from across the room. The mist funnels away into the corridor, revealing a young woman sitting in the corner. She has dark curly hair and is wearing red overalls. The woman from the distress signal. She doesn't look up, but keeps writing in a notebook on her lap. A nurse comes into the room and frowns at the ash on the bed. Picking up a dustpan and brush, he sweeps away the man's remains and tips them into the bin. You can't do that! The nurse turns to her. We need to keep the place hygienic. Those ashes should go to his family, says the doctor. Whose family? The nurse asks, brow crinkling. The man who was there minutes ago. We don't know his name. The woman in the corner looks up from her notebook. His name was Marcus Haddon. He made cakes in the catering facility but longed to be a librarian. Stop it, Olivia, the nurse says. No one's been in this bed for weeks. We saw him. Amy objects. He was there. I don't know who you both are, but you're as bad as her. He points to Olivia. At last. Someone as bad as me. You just swept him up and tipped him into the bin, Amy says, striding up to him. The nurse looks at her calmly. I'm calling security. There's plenty of room in the prison for dissidents. He turns back and walks out of the ward. It's no good. He can't see it. None of them can. And yet you can. You sent the distress signal. Someone has been killed every day for a month, and I'm the only one who knows it. I'm Olivia Pamiak. Delighted to meet you. I'm the doctor and this is Amy. Amy Pond, Amy says. Scottish. Listen. The ticking's faded away. We need to follow the fog. Find its source. She picks up a large rucksack from the floor, flings it over one shoulder and strides out of the room. The doctor and Amy stare at each other, and then run after her. 
Outside, in the marketplace, Olivia is standing on a raised bandstand, turning in circles to survey the fog, collar flipped up against the damp air. The doctor and Amy join her. The fog will lift, then return. I keep hoping it'll lead me to whoever is behind all of this. The ticking has faded, but it's strange. I can still feel it. Yes, it's like it's under my skin. Olivia traces the veins in her wrist. Well, now I feel left out, says Amy. I can't feel it at all. It'll start up properly again tomorrow, just before someone dies. That's when I can follow it. No one else is going to die. It's not that easy. One person has died between the rising of the second and third suns every day for a month. Look! She takes out her notebook and hands it to the doctor. She flicks through the densely written pages. On each one is an account of how someone died and details of their life. Achievements, strengths, weaknesses, the small things they liked, the big things they said when it came to their deaths. Thirty people. Most of them officers are dead and no one notices apart from you. It's like a memory plague. I'm holding on to everyone's memories. Olivia takes back the notebook, holding tightly. The doctor watches. How come you can hear it and remember everyone? Why are you so special? I'm not. What's worse? Amy asks. Knowing or not knowing? Ah, good question, the doctor says. What's the plan then? Asks Amy. It's freezing standing around out here. A plan? Yes, getting a plan is a good plan, the doctor says, fingers waving as if coming up with one by themselves. I'm going to take the Sonic for a walk, aren't I? I'm going to track the faint ticks and the fading tox to their source and stop whoever is killing the people of this city. I'm coming with you, says Amy. But the doctor shakes his head. Go with Olivia. See what you can find out, but don't go looking for trouble. Agreed? Olivia and Amy look at each other, then back to him. Agreed. Agreed. Marvellous. Then we'll meet back here in an hour. Two hours tops. Amy and Olivia watch until the doctor is out of sight. So, where shall we look for trouble first? The doctor follows the ticks of a faraway clock until the streets run out of sheeting. As he steps out onto the marshland, the fog grows thicker. It clings to him like an extra jacket. He wades through grasses and reeds, hoping that the cawing birds with their soaring cry aren't hungry. The ticking sound and the flicking sound are growing louder. At least the doctor thinks so. If it weren't for the sonic screwdriver, he'd wonder if it wasn't echoing around his head. What could it be that shrouds itself in fog and sounds like a book with a clock face? That sounds like a joke, but really isn't. It kills whatever it is. Not just that, it kills the thing that keeps us alive beyond our breath. The memories of others. The doctor looks in the direction that the sonic is indicating. A thin shadow passes across the fog, like a second hand across a clock. The doctor walks towards it. As they leave the marketplace, Olivia puts a hand on Amy's arm. Wait here a moment, please. She ducks back among the crowd and stops in front of a bread stall. The stallholder has deep shadows under her eyes. Get your bread and pastries here, the woman says. <sighs> Martina, can I talk with you in private? Not really the time, Olivia, Martina says. I've got to sell out before everything absorbs the fog. Look at this. She holds up a baguette so sodden and soggy that half of it drops to the ground. It's important. Go on then, Martina says, crossing her arms and sending flour flying. Marcus has died. I was with him. He said to say he was sorry. Martina's face crumples and her hand goes to her chest, leaving a print across her heart. She smooths down her apron and her face composes itself, as if time turned a scrunched-up ball back into a blank sheet of paper. What are you talking about? 
Martina says. Yeah, what are you talking about? The stallholder next door calls out. A crowd gathers around them. Martina's brother, Marcus, has just died. I was trying to... We know what you're trying to do, the other stallholder replies. Cause trouble again. Everyone knows that Martina doesn't have a brother. Who needs a sibling when you got cake, eh? Martina calls. Great slabs of Reichland cake made only in this illustrious colony at a reduced price today. Her voice marches across the square. She's grinning, but tears are falling from her reddening eyes. He said he was sorry, and so am I. Go and do some work for once, Olivia, Martina tells her. No one wants your lies. Watching from a distance, Amy has caught the hurt on Olivia's face and approaches the bread store. Amy takes Olivia's arm as they pass through the crowd. People turn away in disgust or refuse to move at all. One spits, others shake their heads. They don't like you much, do they? Amy says, as they finally leave the market. Sometimes I wonder if they're right. I'm imagining things. But you've seen it. You know. Unless you're imagining us, too. <sighs> Don't you start. <laughs> Why do you tell them? When you know what their reaction will be. Because they ask me. Marcus told me he fell out with his sister on the voyage and they haven't spoken since. He wanted to make it all right in the end. Most do. It's their final request. I've been able to do it for everyone. Except one. But they pay no attention. They know, on some level, even though the fog is messing with their memories. The fog swirls around their heads, as if proving her point. Now what? We find out more about the people who've died. What they've got in common. Any reason they would be killed. I've tried that. There's nothing. There's always something. We could poke around in their homes. See if we can find anything? Olivia looks down and bites her lip, as if chewing on thoughts. Okay, I'll take you. One of them lived just up here. She points down a metallic alleyway. The alleyway walls are so close that they have to walk single file. The fog so thick they can't see their feet. They must trust that the metallic footsteps they hear are their own. At the end of the alley, Olivia turns left into a residential square lit by floodlights. Terraced cabins box in a rectangular lawn. A skeletal tree sits in the center of the grass. Fog gathers around its branches, like the ghost of the tree in spring. This way. Olivia keeps to the shadows where she can. Amy follows, passing cabins on the way. Each one has a metal door and a sign over it bearing the occupant's name. These are the officers' quarters. They made up one long corridor on the ship. When we landed, they were shunted into a square. Just like that? <laughs> we had to unfold the whole ship, lay out the streets and squares, put the kits together for the library and other buildings. <laughs> it took ages. A flatback city. Olivia rummages deep in her bag and pulls out a crowbar. Come on. Olivia stops in front of a boarded-up cabin. The metal door is scratched and scuffed beneath the bars. Torn rivet holes in the frame either side, as if it's been broken into and boarded up again and again. <coughs> Olivia stands on tiptoe and touches the plaque above the door. The name has been scored out. First Officer Alan Sagraff lived here. Why is it boarded up? It happened the day after he died. Everyone's trying to scratch out evidence that he lived. You're not. Well, that's me, isn't it? Reviled of Reichlin. They tried to blot them all out of existence. Sir Graf included. But I remember him. Not bad. I work in construction. Sometimes you have to take things apart to put them together again. The cabin's blue lights switch on as soon as they step inside. There's only enough room for a bed, cupboard, a desk with swivel screen and a bathroom. We'd better be quick. The patrol will pass by soon. 
Olivia turns on the large screen. It fills with the image of a man with cliff-edged cheekbones and wrinkles scored into his face, like the creases on military trousers. First Officer Sigraf, I presume? Guesses Amy. Not bad. If you like them stern. I don't. Amy opens the top drawer in the desk. It contains a row of medals, lined up like a child's drawing of a solar system. The other drawers are empty. Olivia swipes down the screen, scanning messages and files, opening them out into holograms that sit on her hand. Clever, Amy says, turning her attention to the rest of the cabin. Sigraf's overalls dangle from hangers like deboned men. Amy checks all the pockets. Empty. She turns to Olivia. All I found out about him is that he didn't want anyone to find out about him. You? Nothing. I was hoping to find his personal letters. I, I was sure he'd have left something. Did you know him? Not really. Not enough. He was a great architect. Designed the city and he gave evidence against Captain Medina. I don't know much else. I didn't get to him in time to write his testimony. I heard the ticking, but didn't know what it meant then. Olivia closes her eyes, as if blocking something out. Once I found I could track the ticking, I haven't missed one since. Big responsibility, holding onto a city's memories. Everyone deserves to be remembered. Outside, footsteps approach the cabin, and voices. Hey! We're in here, you know! Amy yells, hammering her fists against the door. Let us out! The only response is the shriek of a drill. They're trapped inside. The doctor only realizes that he's walked into a lake when it pours over the top of his boots. Ah, now this could be our water source. He can just about make out the edges of the lake. A fine mist lies over it. Crouching down, the doctor examines the water with the sonic screwdriver. Nothing unusual, just bog-standard H2O. The doctor glances up. The fog is sweeping across the lake towards him. The sonic's light is the only thing visible. Whatever it is, wherever it's coming from, it's coming for us. Please! Amy shouts inside the cabin, banging on the door until it clangs. You hear something? Yes! Amy turns to Olivia. Say something, would you? Oh, there's no point. Olivia leans against the wall and crosses her arms. Is someone in there? Nah, no one lives there, never has. Can't be anyone in there. Yes, there can! So, there isn't. Completely empty and always will be. The guard sounds almost definitely definite. What's wrong with all of you? Next job, then. That was the worst pantomime ever! I told you, Amy. They've made their own story, one where he was never born. <sighs> well, Budge. Oh, calm down, Amy. There must be another way out of here, Amy says, hammering at the walls and door. She kicks at Sigraf's desk in frustration. A secret drawer shunts out of the desk. Inside, a leather-bound book sits on a bundle of papers. Amy reaches for it, but Olivia stops her. Oh, look. Olivia opens the book. Each page is dated and filled with neat handwriting. It's his logbook. I assumed it had burned with him. He must have designed this for his own desk. She flicks through to the last entry. Her hands are as shaky as the final words in the book. This is my confession. On our voyage to Reichland, I led a mutiny against Captain Medina. This was not for the reasons I stated. She is innocent. I, I also want to apologize to my family with all of my heart. I'm so sorry. I wish I could tell them myself as I regret everything that passed. I'm First Officer Alan Sigraf, and now I'm signing out. The fog weaves round the Doctor, ticking and flicking. Hello there. I'm the Doctor. The Doctor holds out his hand. Fog weaves over his fingers like a coin trick. I know who you are, Doctor. 
done this before, Amy says, watching as Olivia easily cracks open the boarded door. I built these cabins. I know the weak points. Could have said. I told you to calm down. Anyway, if you hadn't kicked off, then we wouldn't have found the logbook. Medina made everyone keep records. She said history was important for the colony's future. What happened then, in this mutiny? She needed to be removed. That's all I was told. I was never convinced, though. She was a great captain. Then let's see if we can find more logbooks. Maybe we can find out what really happened. I've got to do something first. I do it every day. Olivia walks out, leaving Amy in the cabin. What are you doing now? Amy shouts as Olivia drills outside the cabin wall. You better not be trapping me in here again. They'll have ruined it again by morning. But at least he exists. For now. You coming then? Outside the cabin, Amy looks up. Above the door is a shining plaque etched with a clear name. First Officer Alan Sigrath. Olivia leads Amy across the square to a boarded up cabin. As she breaks in, the smell of dank air escapes. Ten minutes later, they walk out with another logbook. They do the same in every forgotten cabin in the city, searching in desks and behind the beds of the dead, until Olivia's rucksack is heavy with all the logbooks. Except one. Lastly, they stand inside Marcus's cabin, today's victim. His coat lies on the crumpled bed, as if he's resting beneath. Let's get on with it, <sighs> Amy says with a shiver. The doctor will be back soon. He'll be the one waiting for once. Marcus had no logbook, at least not one they could find. His screen, though, was filled with love letters to a man he left behind. I had to go. I hope you'll understand one day. It's my only opportunity. I miss you, Marcus writes in another. It's like when the moon went. I've no high tide anymore. Amy closes that folder and opens another. It is only one file, marked Confession. Look at this! The shame that I carry, other than leaving a man who loved me, is that I stole from my sister. During the mutiny, I took the money from her safe on the ship. The code was our shared birthday. She knew, siblings do but never said a word. I'm glad I've been forced to confess. There's much I'm sorry for, but I'm most sorry for that. Someone's making them confess, extracting secrets like teeth. Look at his last words, they're the same. My name is Marcus Haddon, and I'm signing out. Back in the marsh, the fog has taken over. The doctor can't even see his own waggling fingers. Other than the ticking sound, quiet has descended. Even the birds have stopped cawing, listening for what comes next. Why are you targeting these people? Will you keep going until there's no one left? Did you really think no one would come and help? I ask the questions, Doctor. You don't have a monopoly on question marks. Neither do you. Show yourself. It is not yet time. When is it time? I'm booked up till Christmas for meetings with invisible entities. <laughs> your words are brave, but I can hear your hearts. I know what is written on them. And you will be held accountable. A large crow-like bird cries down to the doctor. He waves to it. I know what you mean. And yes, we shall stop it. We have to. There you are, the doctor says, looming out of the fog in the market square. 
He steps up onto the bandstand and joins Olivia and Amy on the bench. He's smiling, yet wringing his hands as if ridding them of mist. He takes a sandwich out of his pocket and nibbles across the crust as if playing a mouth organ. Where are our sandwiches? asks Amy, holding out her hand. Ah, yes, sorry. A nice young man on a stool gave them to me. Cheese and pickle. Wherever you go in the universe, you can always get a cheese and pickle sandwich. Never ask where the cheese comes from, and certainly not the pickle. The doctor pulls out two more drooping sandwiches from his pocket. You're joking, Amy says, eyebrows making a break for her hairline. Who knows what else you got in your pockets? So, what have we gleaned? says the doctor, through cheese and pickle. You first, you're the oldest. I really am. Although, what I've just seen makes me wonder. And that is? Very hard to say. Whatever it is, it knows me. Your turn. We found these in the victim's cabins. Olivia hands the doctor the books. He stands and paces round the bandstand, flicking through them. Oh, don't do that. They all end with something they're ashamed of, then sign out. Something's forcing them to confess, and then, within a day, they're dead. Most of them mention the mutiny. They banded together to gain power over the colony. Where's Captain Medina? The prison zone. Blazing around again, Olivia, says a voice from the fog. Martina walks up the bandstand steps. Her face looks sunken, as if caving under the weight of what she's forgotten. Haven't you caused enough damage for one day? You're right, Martina. Someone's causing trouble. The silhouette of a gathering crowd presses through the fog. I'm guessing they don't want to hear us singing, Amy says, as Olivia gathers up all the logbooks. Terribly sorry. No performance today. Left my glockenspiel at home. The prison is a sheer, mirrored box on the edge of the city. Amy, Olivia and the Doctor walk around it, fog-smoked shadows of themselves gliding alongside. There's no door, Amy says, knocking on the walls. How are we supposed to get in? Hello there, calls the Doctor. Any chance it's visiting time? Step forward, says an unseen voice. They move forward. Stop. State name of prisoner and purpose of visit. Captain Edith Medina. We're here to learn about what she did. Cell 20. Captain Medina sits, straight-backed, at a desk in her cell. Her hair is rolled back into a bun, not one hair daring to slide from its grip. Are you coming in then? She says, getting up. I'd offer you an aperitif and an easy chair, but all I have is water and a hard bed. Her visitors approach. Amy looks around the cell. At least there's no fog, she says. And who are you? Asks Medina. I'm the doctor, the doctor says, with a smile that could cut the right wire in anyone. And that's supposed to mean something to me? Medina replies, folding her arms, wires uncut. I'm Amy, and this is Olivia. Ah, yes, Olivia. The captain greets her with a smile. I hope you're still writing. <laughs> Seems to be all I do now. Good. I told your father you'd be chronicling the colony one day. Really? What did he say? Well, he never was very verbose, unless it was in his interest. And then he never stopped talking. But I'm sure he was proud. In fact, I know it. So what can I help you with? Thirty people have died in the last four weeks. Officers who admit to falsifying charges against you. And you're here to see if I could have murdered a month's worth of my former charges? Well, no. Well, yes. I suppose you could have done, but I didn't. I've motive, but means and opportunity are lacking. Not that it matters. Our numbers are down to 335, and I'm in here, unable to help. How many? If 30 have died, then there are 335 left. And do you still follow the Earth model of years, months and days? Of course. Let us out! Now! What's wrong? I know who the murderer is, and he won't stop till he kills me.
Outside, one of the suns has already set, and another is chasing it over the horizon. The half-finished rib cages of buildings to be shine in the long dusk. Go back to the TARDIS and stay there. We're not going anywhere till you tell us what's going on, Amy says. I have to face him alone. That's how the judgment works. What judgment? There was a fairy tale on my planet, the Calendar Man. A being that decides if people have lived well and wisely. If he finds they haven't, he kills them, writing them out of history and into his book. His book? I thought it was only a story. To scare tiny Time Lords into living each of their incarnations well. Nobody died. Maybe they did, but were forgotten. What made you think he's behind this? He chooses one person a day from each planet's calendar year. The number of colonists reminded me. It's like he's ripping pages out of a calendar as a message. And he wants you. Is there no way around it? <laughs> uh, no, the fairy tale said that if the calendar man convicted an innocent, then he'd die. I'm not sure I'm innocent. Wait, you know how they confessed then signed out? Well... There weren't any signatures. So where did they sign out? The calendar man's book. Like a murderous autograph hunter. But if the calendar man's removing them from history, how come Olivia remembers them? Medina remembers too. There's no fog in the prison. Could be a memory loss agent in the mist. But that doesn't explain Olivia. Why do you think you don't forget? Because... I write down their histories? And you must never stop. The world needs stories. It needs to remember. Listen, find yourself a pen name that fits. It works for me. And keep writing. The fog is rolling in. The ticking and flicking sound surrounds them. Back to the TARDIS, both of you. The Doctor strides into a wall of fog and out of sight. Doctor! Amy can see nothing but fog, hear nothing but ticking. Olivia grabs her hand. This way, quietly. I'm here! The doctor shouts into the fog. The ticking circles him like a clock face. I know who you are. Say it. Are you that much of an egotist? The rhyme, doctor. The calendar man can take it all, your years, your months, your days. Live each hour as if it lasts, or he'll write your life away. A tall, thin figure emerges from the fog. A man, or the stretched shape of one. His eyes as pale as paper. He holds a large book in his hands. The ticking seems to seep from his skin. I have come for you, Doctor. I'm flattered, of course, but you really didn't have to. Human lives are as insubstantial as mist. Time Lord lives have weight. They satisfy. You are in your last incarnation. The final days of your final chance. How well have you spent your days, Doctor? Are you asking me to do your job for you? Submit to my judgment. And not one more human life on this planet will be found wanting. The calendar man holds up the book and places it down on the ground. Mist swirls over it. If I agree, and you can't convict me, then you'll return the memories of everyone on this planet. Give back its history, deal? The calendar man flickers, as if making a decision. Agreed. I shall start with your first incarnation. Work my way along your calendar. He holds out a hand and places it on the Doctor's chest. Memories flick through the Doctor's mind. From orange skies to lost friends. From enemies to so many endings that the Doctor's hearts seem to stop as one. Then lurch back into beating in triple quick time. <gasps> ah! Ah! Stop! Please! Amy moves out from her hiding place behind a foggy tree. We've got to stop this. He's breaking. Olivia grabs her arm. She's peering through the mist towards the doctor's distress, listening intently. I think I can help. If this doesn't work, then remember me, okay? Now get back and keep quiet. Amy nods and watches as Olivia walks off into the ticking mist. 
People keep telling me that. You think they'd learn? She sets off after her friend. The calendar man becomes more and more substantial, filled in with days of the Doctor's regenerations. Oh, Doctor. The lives gone. The days unused. All because of you. You burn through civilizations as I paper. You marshal enemies and court death. Yes. You admit guilt. I am guilty. The calendar man removes his hand from the doctor's chest. The doctor sags to the floor. Then sign yourself out of your life and into my book. The calendar man raises a hand. His book rises from its fog-covered spot and lands again at the doctor's feet. It opens by itself, flicking through written-off histories till it reaches an empty page. The doctor picks up the pen, attached by a cord. The calendar man's tongue flickers in and out, waiting. The thing is, the doctor says, standing up slowly and unsteadily, holding on to the book, that I would have to sign my name. And I can't do that, I'm afraid. I'd have to give you my real name. And frankly, you're not worth it. You do not weigh up. Then I shall continue to take from this colony until it is forgotten. Ah, well, there's a problem with that, too. Someone's already signed their name in my place. The book flies into the calendar man's hands, falling open onto the last signed page. Who has done this? That's me. Olivia steps through the mist. Ha-ha! Ignore a young woman writing in the corner at your peril. The flicking sound now centers on Olivia. The fog encloses her till she can't see. What's happening? Your interference has been judged. Every page of your chronicle will be destroyed. And with it, your precious memories. Amy walks out of the mist. That's not enough though, is it? She says, stopping before the calendar man, arms folded. Her name is in your book, and it's in the rules, your rules. If it's in your book, then she has to die. What are you waiting for? Amy! No, really, what's the hold-up? Should I hold your book for you? You can get a good swing at her. Don't fancy it. I know why. If you kill an innocent, then you die. And Olivia is innocent. It's true. You can read her heart from here. Anyone can. She's lived well, unlike you. The ability to rip beings out of history and you revel in it. And what are you going to do now? All those in your book must die. Yet if you kill an innocent, you must too. Nothing to say. No judgment to make. Here's your choice. Kill Olivia and die, forgotten, your rhyme never recited. Or write your story in your book, sign your real name, and live on, as we all deserve to, in memory and myth. The calendar man pauses, then picks up the pen. It flies across the paper, writing out his long life in curlicues and ink blots, then signs his name. The book and pen drop to the ground. With a gasp of flame, the calendar man twists high into the air like a paper lantern before turning into ash and falling to the ground. The flicking and ticking stop. Around them, the fog turns into mist and the mist disappears, revealing the last sunset of the day burning against the purple sky. What exactly was the Calendar Man? Probably never know for sure. A cheer rises from the direction of the market square, followed by the keening of those who know loss. They're remembering. <laughs> the Calendar Man kept his word. And I'll keep it too. The doctor holds the book close. Amy turns to him. How did you know Olivia was going to sign her name? He told me to use a pen name. Of course. What did you choose? 
Olivia Pamiak. But that is your name. It was my mum's. I stopped using my dad's after he left us. He was the reason I wanted to come to make up. Wait, don't tell me. Amy closes her eyes. Sigraf! He was your father. <laughs> Barely. But he apologised. In the confession. I'll always have that. Both right and wrong need remembering. That's right. Good days and bad days. As important as each other. The Doctor, Amy and Olivia wander through Reichland's resounding streets, back to the waiting TARDIS. So, Olivia Pamiak, the Doctor says when they're at the door. Do you fancy a trip? Add one more good day to your tally. Thanks. But my place is here. Stories to tell, wrongs to right, but one day you're on. Reichland would have died without you. Save a date on the calendar for me. Amy and the Doctor walk into the ship. We're home, the Doctor says, bounding up to the console and patting it. Time for one more story before bedtime, wouldn't you say? Amelia Pond? Always, Amy smiles. The calendar man's book ripples under the Doctor's arm. Uh, won't be long. I've got something to do first. Deep in the TARDIS library, the Doctor wanders through the maze of shelves trailing his fingers against the books, until he reaches a section right at the back. You'll find friends in here, he says, slotting the book alongside others in a cabinet. The doctor closes the door and locks it twice. As he turns to leave, he stops and looks back at the cabinet. It's very faint, as if far away or long ago, but he can still hear the sound of flicking pages. And with it, a certain ticking. Welcome to the 11th Doctor Chronicles box set. My name is Helen Goldwyn and I am the director. And with me I have Jake Dudman. Hello. And Eleanor Crooks. Hi. And Eleanor is appearing in The Calendar Man. Uh, this is the last one to be recorded. So, Jake, how do you feel about the 11th Doctor Chronicles now that you've done two box sets? Obviously, you've done the 10th Doctor as well. Uh, it's been an absolute joy. I'm really sad that it's it's over for now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, the 11th Doctor in particular has a, a special place in my heart. He's a very fun character to play because he's so ridiculous and and jumpy even more though even more so than than tenants um but we've had four brilliant stories and four brilliant guest actors and four brilliant directors <laughs> i've come in all my different personalities um obviously people have heard the 10th doctor chronicles now mm. so how are you feeling about that experience oh it's been lovely it's been lovely to hear such wonderful responses and to to read the good reviews even though i'm like i'm not going to read the reviews and then I inevitably do. So thank you if you're listening and you wrote us a lovely review. Um, yeah, it's it's been absolutely joyous and slightly relieving to hear that it's had positive feedback because, you know, I don't underappreciate the massive boots that I'm stepping in uh, into, uh, not only um, to 
portray Matt and David's Doctors, who are obviously so beloved, but also Nick Briggs, who did such a wonderful job on the Ninth Doctor Chronicles. Mm, so, he did. Um, so to be filling those boots uh, is a big ordeal, um, but a big privilege. And I just come into every studio day feeling uplifted, uh, inspired and excited to yeah. be working. Me too. We've had great fun recording these, haven't we? Have, it's yeah. been brilliant. Um, so, I mean, how does Matt's 11th Doctor differ from David's 10th? I mean, obviously there are different vocal techniques maybe or yeah. affect your voice differently. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think Matt's is probably closer to my own. Um, it, they're, they're very different in the way that if we're talking about purpose and intentions and what the character's thinking and all this sort of stuff, David's character is very much about, it, to, to me at least, um, trying to be cool and trying to be the sort of you know heroic guy who's going to come and save the day. He's got a bit of arrogance about him, a bit of ego, whereas Matt's doctor is so alien and so just weird and wacky. I mean, today we had him eating soggy sandwiches and you know he's just um <laughs> it's very strange but yeah in terms of vocally i think the rhythm and pace of them is very different david's always on the point like this and matt's just oh you, you never know what word he's going to emphasize or go soft on or loud on or you know so he's uh, he's a minefield <laughs> So, Eleanor, hi. Uh, hiya. <laughs> so, how this is your third time working yeah. at Big Finish, is that right? Yeah, that's what, right. What have you worked on before? So, previously, I had I played a character called Calliope Maleska, and that was in the Diary of River Song. Mm. And she was a natural psychopath, so that was really fun. That <laughs> <laughs> was really fun. Is that your casting? Type um, cast. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think it might be my new calling. I don't know. <laughs> um, and then, previously to that, I played a character called Kendra, and she was. Like quite similar to myself, I think, actually, especially vocally. Um, so it's nice to kind of have something, again, a bit different to what I've previously done. Yeah, well, obviously today we've been recording a, a lovely script from A.K. Benedict. What did you make of the character of Olivia in this script when you read it? So from well, when I first read it, what I got from her was that she... Well, it seemed that she was quite under underestimated, but actually really smart. Mm -hmm. So that's always quite nice to play someone who's almost a bit downtrodden but completely determined with what they actually want to get out of it so mm. I couldn't wait to get in and start recording mm. brilliant brilliant and I have to ask he's here in the room but oh, be honest God, I um, just read the question how has it been working with Jake oh it's been so fun today <laughs> it's been so fun it's been like kind of nice and kind of silly and it's always kind of like that when I come in so it's really great to work with new people mm. and have a great time. Yeah. Um, any favourite moments throughout the day? I love, you know, when Doctor Who does those long, big speeches, mm. um, with, like Matt's Doctor. Yeah. So that was a favourite, personal favourite of mine. Towards mm. the end of this script, yeah, he had a yeah. lovely speech, didn't he? It was, uh, yeah, really worked well. So you said you could hear the music in the background. I could definitely hear it. Yeah. 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 Um, the early Matt Smith era did focus very much on Amy and the uh, the fairy tale quality of storytelling. Um, how has it been uh, depicting Amy today? Because obviously you're not a Scottish girl, are you? I'm not a Scottish girl. Room, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Um, the rumours are false. <laughs> um, just putting that out there. Um, oh, it was interesting because, you know, in the 10th Doctor Chronicles, we had um, Billy, uh, Freema and uh, Catherine, who've all sort of got estuary accents. But then in this box set, we've had Clara, who's from Blackpool, and Amy, mm. who's from, um, I don't know where, in, in Inverness, you said. Didn't you? Well, yes, Karen's from uh, oh, in, Karen Inverness, is. yeah. Um, so it's been interesting to try and play a uh, Scottish girl. Um, but it's been fun and, and a challenge, you know. I mean, th that's the thing I love about these box sets as well is that it is challenging and, and you know, we'll get to a scene and it'll be like, so what do we think of this character? <laughs> oh, no, let's pick this accent. Yeah, yeah, um, you've had to come up with lots of different voices uh, yeah, yeah. for these other little characters that crop up. It's been really fun to watch, though. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, fun to do. <laughs> So, Jake, looking back um, and thinking about the other stories, have you got a particular favourite? Have you got a moment that really stands out for you? Um, the, the first one we did, which was uh, The Top of the Tree, which was almost a year ago now. When was that? Oh, no, it, was it must have been August yeah, time. Yeah, a few months ago, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, we're coming up to 
towards a year. Um, and that was really fun. I loved the story. I loved meeting Simon, who wrote it, mm. and to work with Danny as well, who I obviously recognised as Kazran. Because mm. um, uh, we just really got on and had a, a fun day. And it was, I think there's also a charm about it being the first 11th Doctor that we'd done, because it was really like sort of a um, full circle thing because the, f- the first sort of impression that I did was a Matt Smith impression oh. when I was 16. So to have the sort of moment where I step into the booth and deliver the first line as the doctor, uh, as Matt Smith's doctor was a bit of a, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I think you were quite nervous on that first one. Oh yeah, I think for the first couple we, we did, because we did the, a couple of the 10th doctors that same week mm. and it was sort of settling in and being a bit like, Okay, well, you know, this is what you're doing now. And understanding the vocal stamina that's required yeah. for a job like this, because you're working from ten o'clock in the morning till, you know, five or six in the in the evening, mm-hmm. and and you have got the bulk, the vast majority of the, <laughs> yeah. the dialogue. Well, you? yeah, I think I think sort of unknowingly, through doing more of these, I think my either my stamina's improved or mm, I've oh, learned how to uh, work the energy better. I don't know, but mm-hmm. it's um. They felt shorter as we've done them. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's been great to see yeah. you, um, l- you know, grow in that way and to learn your craft even more. Yeah. It's been great to watch. Thank you. So all that remains to say is, well, Jake, do you have any final words? I will always remember when the Doctor was me. <laughs> <laughs>